We've just come through a um, season of waiting uh, that is Advent. It's a season where, where we reenact those early followers of God waiting on uh, the Messiah. And we remember or are reminded um, that waiting is an essential part of spiritual maturity as well as an unavoidable reality of life. Even outside of Christmas and Advent, obviously, our lives are marked with waiting. We're waiting for the weekend, for Christmas break, for summer break, for our driver's license, for a son and daughter to come home from college. We're waiting for an expected promotion. We're waiting for January when we'll finally get serious about life changes. We're waiting for a world to return to normal, whatever that is. Waiting is a common experience for all of us, but it can be very disorienting. Why do the promises of God and their fulfillment seem so disconnected and so far apart at times? Why do other people seem to be so much more resilient and happy and content and stable? What am I doing wrong? Where is God in this? And why do I bother? Asaph, who is either the writer or the transcriber of this psalm, is asking these very same questions. And that they're, and they're questions that I often have as a pastor, as well as a follower of Christ. And so it's a psalm that is kind of a, a centering psalm for me. It's one that I come back to frequently personally as well as in preaching. And I I hope that this psalm resonates with you as much as it does uh, with me. Now, as I said, we don't know much about Asaph. There's a couple of them in the Bible. He is either the writer or the transcriber. But he says that he was losing his balance. Surely, he says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. They had nearly, I had nearly lost my foothold. Now, Asaph is having a, a crisis of faith. And what does it stem from? Where does this crisis of faith come from? It comes from his observation of the world and his observation in verse 3 that he sees the prosperity of the wicked. Now, these verses were written perhaps 3,000 years ago. But this theme shows up in literature, movies, and music right up to this day. Tell me if these lyrics sound familiar. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because the sinners are much more fun. Billy Joel says, only... The good die young. Asaph observes the arrogant and the wicked, and he notices uh, a couple of things. One is that their bodies appear to be healthy and strong. In verse 4, he describes people like we know that don't exercise, they don't really have to work at it, and yet they're perfectly thin and tan and toned, and they have bright white teeth and low cholesterol. 
No one likes these people, even if they aren't arrogant or wicked. But these people also have no fear of death, Asaph says. In verse 4, it says, actually, they have no, tr- no struggles. But this is a tricky verse, and there's a very obscure Hebrew word underneath it. Older English translations translate it as such. That they have no pangs in death. These are people that live totally reckless lives who have no fear of the future but seem to be rewarded by life and then die peacefully in their sleep. They have no pangs, no fear of death. They're also arrogant and boastful. They belittle others and mistreat others. This is in verses 6 through 8. It seems these people are always looking down at others while believing that everyone else is looking up at them. And then verse 9 and 11, they are cynical about and they're mocking towards God. They lay claim to heaven and earth. And why not? Because how would God know? Asaph wonders on their behalf. They're partying like rock stars while living fat and happy into old age. These are the the Keith Richardses of the ancient world who has taken more drugs than entire genres of music. People were amazed that he was still alive 30 years ago, but he's still kicking around and he still wants to tour again. Well, the problem as Asaph sees it, is that most of the world looks like this to him. Most of the world are living the lives of the Rolling Stones and living well into their old age. This is all working out for them just fine. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. And this observation creates a real existential spiritual crisis For Asaph, in verse 3, says, what is his response to this? I was envious. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw these things. He looks around at the world and he sees people that are living self-absorbed and self-indulgent lives, and yet everything seems to go their way. Now, he doesn't say as Many Christians do. Well, don't worry, they'll get what's coming to them. Asaph is a little bit more honest. He wishes that he was one of them. And he begins to second guess the very nature and rule of of God. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Not in my case. He says, all is in vain in verse 13, for I have kept my heart pure. But where is the goodness in my life? Maybe I'm wasting my time. Maybe all my efforts at living a faithful life add up to nothing. Maybe none of it is worth it. He is praying his disorientation. His disorientation that comes from knowing intimately the promises of God by praying them repeatedly, and yet seeing the disarray that is evident in his world, and seeing the contrast between followers of God, like himself, who are suffering, and those who are wicked and arrogant 
and those who are prospering. Now, one thing to note, one thing I take comfort in is the fact that the Bible isn't full of pious platitudes that feel disconnected from our daily lives. It's not full of stories of people that are constantly modeling unshakable faith, but we have a Bible that is replete with stories and with prayers like this one. Prayers about failure and heartache and disorientation and real people, God's people, who are struggling through these things. These are the stories, these are the people, these are the prayers that God includes in Holy Scripture. Because this is real life. And this is where God chooses to meet us. Not in the sky, not in platitudes, but in real life. We do see also not only Asaph's complaint, his existential crisis, but we see at least the beginning of his renewal. As we come through Advent and we turn the corner on a new year, we are reminded that faith is not something that we possess. Faith is less of a possession and more of an act of hopeful waiting. Faith is less of a possession and more of an act of faithful waiting. It is actively leaning into a future reality that will somehow make sense of our experience now. It is choosing, friends, to inhabit a community that is living against the grain and is assessing and valuing the world differently. And it is a communal action. Faith is a communal action of believing together that God is making sense of our world. Asaph says in verse 17 that I was troubled until I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, he is not describing here some kind of magical transformation. And as you all know, that doesn't happen when you enter into the place of worship, and certainly not as you enter onto your screens for Zoom worship. There's nothing magical about this type, this time that we are spending together. It is not coming to fill the tank with a, a little lift that can get you through the coming week. Sometimes, in fact, belonging to a community of faith can be exhausting because there's other people in this community. But what Asaph is saying and what I think that the Bible consistently teaches us is that none of us are our best selves on our own. And this is especially true in matters of faith. Throughout the Bible, lives of faith are always oriented to community. They're always experienced and lived in the midst of community, toward gathered worship, toward relationship with God on behalf of and through other people. What we see over and over is that we need fellow travelers in this journey because this journey is hard and this journey is full of disorientation. But what we need to see is that disorientation is most disorienting when we're alone. 
when we're isolated, when we're lacking in relationships that provide a reasonable plausibility structure to our life of faith, when we are missing the nourishment of the Word of God and His sacraments, disorientation becomes all the more real and vivid. For Asaph, worship gives him the perspective of time. It gives him the perspective of the future. He says, then I understood their final destiny. This isn't gloating in the sense of one day they will get what's coming to them. It's not that he's reveling in their ultimate doom. What he's arguing, I think, is that life can only be properly evaluated from a distance. In this case, life can only be fully evaluated in his situation from the distant future. I'm sure you have all seen Back to the Future, where Marty McFly travels back in time from 1985 to 1955. But when he arrives 30 years previous, he hasn't forgotten the events and the people in the future. He still knows. And so he's able to know that the girl that is hitting on him in 1955 is actually his mom. And he knows that Doc Brown, who he's working with on this project, is gunned down by terrorists at the Twin Pines Mall 30 years from 1955. These things haven't happened yet, but he knows that they will. And his vision of the future is so clear that some of his actions in 1955 seem completely strange to others. Why wear a sleeveless puffy jacket if you're not in the Navy? Why befriend George McFly, the nerd that nobody talks to? Why pick a fight with Biff, who's almost twice your size? Marty is living on the basis of a reality that he knows will unfold only in the future. But he allows it to change his perspective of the present. And he allows it to change the way that he goes about life. Asaph remembers He remembers God. He remembers the person and the promises of God. And we see this in the last part of the passage that we read in verses 23 to 26. What we see are are not only the centering effects of Asaph joining a gathered community, and it's not simply the promise of future events to live into, but it it is a personal relationship that he has with Yahweh that sustains him in the midst of doubt and in the midst of disorientation. He tells God, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Think about those words. Maybe meditate on them this coming week. They are, friends, staggering. 
if we recognize what he is saying. Because according to Asaph, what he is telling God, if I lose everything, but I still have you, I can make it. It may be disorienting. It may be challenging. It may be full of crises, but I can make it if I lose everything and still have you. He is saying to God, I can't do this alone, but if you will go with me, I can make it. This is not some pious denial of the pain and the confusion of life. It is not a platitude about the future, that because of what is coming, that everything will make perfect sense, and I could ignore the challenges, the injustice, the disorientation that I feel. He is not denying that there is present mystery and present confusion, and he admits my flesh and my heart may fail, that that is part of life, but I still have something to hold on to in the midst of disorientation. And he comes back to where he started in verse 1. And it's not just God is good to Israel. That's where he begins. What a great and true statement, but it's still rather abstract. It's like us saying, well, God is good to the church, or God is good to Christians everywhere. It doesn't really help us if it doesn't feel like it's paying off for me personally. But instead, what he begins to say, that it is good to be near God. That is not just good in an abstract way for Israel, but it is good for him. And what he comes to understand is that the point of faith is not the possession of a certain outcome. The point of faith is the possession of of God himself and his promises. And in fact, maybe the inverse of that is that it's the point of faith is being possessed by him. It is him fastening himself to us. It is him fastening his future to our future. It is him fastening himself to us in relationship. Life may be, let me check that, life will be full of mystery. It will be full of things that don't seem to add up. But what we should remember is that we're stuck with that no matter what our spiritual outlook is. No matter if we're outside of the church and outside of faith, we still have a life that is full of mystery and things that don't add up. This isn't a problem just for Christians. But what Christianity does claim, what Advent claims, what the birth of Jesus claims is that the incarnation, Jesus coming into our world, God inhabiting flesh was a cataclysm in the space-time continuum. And in a sense, it would be weird if life wasn't thrown off by that. If our human expectations were perfectly predictive of the future, why do we need the incarnation? And why could we say that it is cataclysmic, that it was a cosmic event? Scientists have known about the existence of gravitational waves for decades, but only in the last few years have they been able to prove their existence empirically. 
I always say things like that, and then some of you intel scientists or really smart people say, now, wait a minute, it was not grass. So you can put that in the comments. But for the sake of argument, gravitational waves have been known, theorized about for decades. But we've theorized about them because of something that must be there. We haven't been able to observe them except in the last few years. And yet, scientists knew these waves were generated from the cataclysm of the Big Bang, but before they had hard evidence of their existence, they just lived and worked as if they did. They lived and worked and did their experiments as if these gravitational waves were proved empirically, case closed. What Advent tells us is that God is not distant or disinterested, but in Jesus, he enters into and he sits with us in our disorientation. In fact, he enters into the disorientation of the entire world, and on the cross, he contradicts it. He absorbs it. He undermines it. And we live in a world now whose values and whose time even have been disrupted and disoriented. Not everything in our world makes perfect sense, nor should we expect it to in a world where God takes on flesh and goes to a cross. But we also believe that there is a coming time where what the work that Jesus does on the cross will be made a fuller reality that he was resurrected and will one day come again. And we live on the basis of knowing that is true, even though it hasn't happened yet, even though we can't prove it empirically in a vacuum tube. We live on the basis of the truth of Jesus' incarnation in the midst of disorientation. If God went to a cross to suffer for you, then surely what you're experiencing now isn't evidence of his abandonment. It isn't evidence of a meaningless world. But it's a world in which he says, I will go with you. It's a world in which Asaph can claim that being in possession of God in relationship is so much better than being in possession of a certain desired outcome. Because God walks through us in the midst of every conceivable outcome. Let me leave you with this. This is the quote from Gerald May, Addiction and Grace, that's in the front of your bulletin. The imminent God in us becomes wounded with us, suffers, struggles, hopes, and creates with us shares every drop of our anger and sadness and joy. The reality of God is so intimate as to be experientially inseparable from our own hearts. But that very same God is at once transcendent. The creating, sustaining, and redeeming power over and above all things. We should not be dismayed that God's being surpasses understanding For it is precisely through this mystery that God incarnate can both lovingly share our condition and powerfully deliver us from it. It is through this mystery that grace remains 
absolute, permanent, and victorious. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these people who are going through a year like no other, a year of death and dying and fear and viruses, a year of political and social upheaval like we haven't seen in 40 years, a life of where violence is inflicted upon other people in the name of political ideology and even religion. It's disorienting. It's disorienting because we can't control the outcome and we can't put a date on the calendar knowing that this will all be over. We have to simply keep walking. And it's hard. And Father, I pray that you would sustain this group of people. I pray for each person that is on this call and those who couldn't make it, that you would enter into their lives in a new way, that you would speak to them in the midst of a disorienting time. Father, I do pray that this year would be different, that the structure of our world, that the environment that we live in, that the way that we go about life would change. But Lord, I don't pray that it would go back to normal. I pray that we would enter into what is a new normal with the grace and the hope that comes in the incarnate Jesus. Let us put our hope in him and let us invite other people into that hope. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.